All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book, Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy, and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there, and the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, special treat for us today on the show. We've got the great James Bamford, author of The Puzzle Palace, Body of Secrets, The Shadow Factory, and the brand new book out called Spy Fail. And I'm sure it has a subtitle. I'm clicking on it. It's Spy Fail, Foreign Spies, Moles, Saboteurs, and the Collapse of America's Counterintelligence. Wow. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Jim? Great. Great to talk to you again, Scott. Uh, great, man. Happy to have you on the show here. So uh, the book is in the mail. So we're going to follow up and do this same interview again in a few weeks here, hopefully, if I can ever get uh, around <laughs> reading it. I have a pile of books I'm trying to read right now, but uh, you do have this great one in the New York Post. The American intelligence community has no accountability, so how can it keep us safe? Yeah, good question. Um, I wasn't really counting on them in the first place, but uh, boy, you really got some bangers here um, when it comes to massive failures in intelligence and counterintelligence, but can we start with Russiagate here? Um, I know that there are a whole lot, hell of a lot of different aspects to it, but it looks to me, nah, I don't know, I'm pretty sure I'm right, that the whole thing was a put on in the first place. In other words, Papadopoulos was set up by the FBI in the first place. And then, of course, they lied about Carter Page and they lied about the DNC hack and that they never believed it at all. The FBI were co-conspirators with the Democrats and making up these lies, and then the CIA under John Brennan got on board for it after that, and then they perpetrated this massive Russiagate hoax against the public and against the elected president of the United States for another couple of years after that. And so I wonder, what's your take on all of that? Obviously, I'm prejudicing, prejudicing, I don't know how you say that, the question and the issue, but I know you wrote a great one about how they set up or, you know, framed or uh, over prosecuted Maria Butina, who really was not any kind of spy at all. So obviously you're hip to this stuff to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I've looked into it, obviously, I've written about it. And uh, uh, yeah, I agree with the conclusion <clears throat> of the Mueller uh, report, which was that there wasn't any collusion between uh uh, the Trump campaign and the Russians. Um, and what I write about in, in my new book is while they were looking under every rock for a Russian, um, uh, inside the uh, Trump campaign, the uh, Hillary Clinton campaign had two spies uh, in there sent there by the uh, uh, United Arab Republic, uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, they were in there for the entire campaign and they spied on uh, uh the Clinton campaign, they had all these conversations with Hillary Clinton. They paid millions and millions of dollars. Uh, actually, the Clinton campaign demanded millions and millions of dollars from them uh, so they could have uh, uh, private uh, little uh, uh, cocktail parties for them in the, um, in the, in the spy's house. So th there was a lot more to it that the FBI never managed to find. But bottom line was, yeah, there were no Russians uh, involved, but there were uh, uh, other uh, countries having spies involved. Isn't that funny? It must have been, right, that, I mean, just besides how in the tank for Hillary they are anyway, that one of the reasons that they played this down had to have been, ah, geez, we're right in the middle of accusing the other guy of being a Manchurian candidate, compromised spy agent of the Kremlin, and here we have real spies that infiltrated the other side that it's already too late. We already let this happen and didn't prevent it from happening, so let's just let it continue, turn a blind eye, play the whole thing down. 
I mean, at what point did they intervene and remove these guys from the campaign, Jim? The well, they never campaign. did. Uh, they never did. Know, no, they never did. They uh, they were there for the entire campaign. It wasn't until a year later, uh, after the campaign, that they uh, uh, were accidentally basically caught. And what makes it even worse is uh, these were two people who should obviously never have been in the campaign in the first place. One of them was a serial pedophile. He'd been arrested numerous times for uh, pedophile activity. And uh, he was uh, the lead guy in the, uh, in the two-man uh, infiltration campaign. And that's uh, George Nader that you're talking about? Yeah, George Nader. And, and his partner uh, was a serial fraudster. He was uh, conning uh, people out of uh, millions and millions of dollars. He would eventually be, uh, he originally had been charged for uh, fraud, and then uh, he was charged again later on. So uh, you had these two people, uh, and George Nader was a very professional spy, basically. He'd even worked for the U.S. occasionally for uh, uh, doing um, uh, assignments. So uh, he was known, and for the entire campaign, he was there uh, getting very close to Hillary, uh, asking her all kinds of questions for intelligence, uh, putting influence in there that the uh, prince, the crown prince in, in uh, uh, the UAE would, uh, would ask them to, to pass on. So they were in there as spies, influence uh, peddlers and so forth. And uh, the reason they got away with it was they had lots of money. Uh, the Clinton campaign continuously demanded millions and millions of dollars from them for the FaceTime, and uh, they continually gave it. And, you know, the question is at the end here, these two people are acting very strange. Uh, they, they're suddenly showing up, donating millions and millions of dollars to the Clinton campaign for upfront FaceTime and personal cocktail parties in their house, uh, not only for Hillary, but also for her husband, uh, Bill, the former president. <clears throat> they both showed up at the spy's house for cocktail parties. And, uh, uh, you know, you would think that having been a former secretary of state, uh, that you would be sort of witting uh, when it came to um, people trying to s send uh, uh, or sell you influence or trying to spy on your campaign. Uh, having been Secretary of State, you would think you would know a little bit about that. And uh, so the question is why, uh, after this came out, there wasn't more of an investigation into the, uh, the Clinton campaign. Uh, why didn't Clinton, uh, uh, you know, be interviewed at least or investigated into what she knew about these two characters who were obviously uh, spies? In, in the book, I actually quote uh, the... Uh, Emails going back and forth between the um, uh, the spies uh, and uh, their spy masters. Uh, so um, it's fascinating just looking at this. And they keep saying, "Well, we we had uh, a great meeting yesterday with the big lady. That was their code name for uh, uh, Hillary." Um, and uh, so it's sort of fascinating reading these. Uh, uh, emails going back and forth between the spies and the spy masters uh, in the Clinton campaign while the FBI is looking under every rock for a Russian and never finding one. Um, again, I titled the book Spy Fail because time and time again, um, the uh, FBI and the intelligence community have failed when it came time to trying to find real spies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing, right? I mean, when you talk about Bill and Hillary palling around with people like this. I don't want to hear ignorance, right? Like they have no excuse. Both of those two know exactly what they're doing. And then, so that has to go for the counterintelligence division too. I mean, I know these guys are cops and not that smart, but come on, everybody knows who George Nader is. And the, uh, in fact, the most press he got in the last decade was because he arranged a meeting with uh, Eric Prince and, um, I think it was the son-in-law, uh, Jared Kushner, um, on is, how do you say it? The Seychelles, that, that, uh, that Island in the Indian ocean there. 
And nobody paid attention to the fact that, as you're saying here, he was embedded with the Clinton campaign the whole time. But he did this one meeting and it was really scandalous because everybody knows who this guy is. As you say, he's got a reputation going back for decades in D.C., right? Well, sure. Like I said, he he actually worked for uh, or he he, uh, did assignments. Uh, I quote uh, uh, Baker, the former secretary of state, um, as saying, yeah, he did uh, work for us. He worked for us on a very sensitive matter. Uh, so he was obviously known to the U.S. Uh, and uh, and for the he, kids out there, when he says former Secretary of State Baker, we're talking about George Bush senior years, 30 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he, he's been around. That was the whole idea. He he couldn't uh, pass the money himself because it was too obvious. So he had to get this other character, Andy Kwaja, to um, uh, act as his sort of uh, front man. So the two of them would go in together and Kwaja uh, would uh, pretty much like sit at George Clooney's bar in his home and uh, uh, sip champagne uh, while uh, George Nader uh, pumped Hillary Clinton for intelligence. So the money would go uh, from Andy Kwaja to to the campaign and then uh, that would uh, eliminate George Nader from from having his fingerprints on the money. But the two would always show up together and the two were a pair for the entire six months of the campaign. So, you know, the question is, what's going on here? You get this one guy coming in, he's sitting at the at the bar uh, nibbling on pretzels and he's giving millions and millions and millions of dollars. And his partner here, uh, uh, George Nader, is uh, basically just uh, there for asking questions and passing on influence. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's talk about the NSA's cyber weapons that got stolen and leaked. How big of a big deal is that? We're not talking about Vault 7 here. That's the CIA. This is the NSA's cyber weapons. Yeah, it's a huge deal. I mean, you know, you have all these stories today about, uh, uh, you know, a few dozen or a few hundred uh, documents kept in... um, uh, a presidential house or a presidential compound or whatever. Um, we're talking uh, more than half a billion documents that were uh, stolen, half a billion documents that were above top secret that were uh, stolen from the NSA uh, over the last few years. And uh, you know, nobody knew that they were being stolen. Nobody knew where they were uh, where, where they were going. Um, but you're talking about half a billion uh, uh, pages of documents, and uh, some of those ended up in Russia, some of them ended up in uh, North Korea, and uh, they were turned against the United States. Uh, the, they used the documents and uh, uh, were able to use the intelligence against the United States. But in addition to that, the uh, NSA lost uh, three quarters of all its cyber weapons. Um, and these are very dangerous. The, uh, the weapons were kept in NSA, uh, supposedly very secure, but uh, some employee managed to steal 75% of them, uh, nearly all the uh, cyber weapons, and then put them up for auction on the internet. Eventually, they uh, ended up in North Korea and Russia. Again, these are enormous failures, and once they uh, ended up in North Korea and Russia, they were used again against the United States. They were targeted against the United States. And eventually it created a uh, what was known as a cyber pandemic. It created a uh, pandemic around the world of uh, uh, cyber attacks, shut down hospitals and medical facilities in uh, England. Then it jumped over to Europe, shut them all down there cross over to Russia and continually to go around the, the world. So it, it became known, well, it, it became known as the, the worst cyber attack in world history. It was called WannaCry. All right, Jim, so let me ask you about uh, the Sony hack. You say in here that that was North Korea. I guess I disbelieve that because that was what TV said and that was what the government said. But also I had read this really interesting thread that said that it was an inside job by an angry uh, Sony employee or some kind of thing like that. It's been a few years now. I don't remember, but they seem to really, you know, throw cold water on the idea. And essentially they blamed kind of blind assumptions 
for the conclusion that it must have been the North Koreans who did it because they were mad about that movie or something like that. But obviously, you know a hell of a lot more about it than me. So what did happen there for real? Well, uh, basically, the uh, uh, Sony wanted to, uh, Sony was really hurting in terms of uh, their films. Their films were not making much money. They were losing a lot of money. And they wanted to uh, have a, a, you know, huge movie. So uh, they came up with this idea uh, of uh, a movie involving uh, the assassination, CIA assassination of, uh, of Kim Jong-un, who's the uh, you know, leader of, of uh, North Korea. And uh, so they thought that would be a great idea. Originally, the, the script was written uh, so Kim Jong-un would not be named, to be some phony name for a chairman of North Korea. Um, but then uh, they changed it to uh, put his real name in there, which was uh, uh, a really serious mistake. Uh, they, they, uh, there were a lot of people that were saying, you shouldn't do this, you're going to anger this country, it's got nuclear weapons. And so they, you know, they wanted to make money and they thought they'd make more money if they used his real name. So they used his real name and uh, they created this movie, it was called The, uh, the Interview. Um, and it, uh, it got them very worried when all of a sudden the um, um, uh, Kim Jong-un and the uh, North Korean government started making uh, uh, very angry sounds about this movie coming out. So um, they got in touch with the head of Sony and they, uh, they made a few changes to the movie, but not many. Um, at the same time, they're making the, the, the film, they're actually putting the film together. Uh, the North Koreans are actually infiltrating Sony. They're, uh, uh, they've got very good hackers in North Korea and they were infiltrating uh, Sony's uh, uh, former films or, or actually their upcoming films and they were infiltrating their, uh, all their emails and so forth. So there was a very big uh, effort by North Korea to secretly um, penetrate um, Sony. At the same time, and obviously Sony, neither Sony nor the U.S. knew about this, uh, at the same time, uh, James Clapper, who was head of uh, U.S. intelligence, flew to North Korea to have a meeting with uh, the chief spy master, his counterpart in North Korea. And they had a dinner together in a restaurant above a bowling alley. Um, so as they're having dinner at this in this restaurant above a bowling alley in, in uh, North Korea, um, the North Korean spy master is uh, obviously laughing to himself because at the same time he's having dinner with Clapper, he's uh, he's infiltrating and exfiltrating uh, Sony. He's stealing all millions and millions of documents at the same time he's having dinner with. Uh, uh, the U.S. spy master. And so uh, obviously the U.S. had no idea about this. This was the largest uh, cyber attack against the U.S. corporation in U.S. history. And at the same time it's taking place, the U chief U.S. spy master is having dinner with the chief North Korean spy master. So it was, you know, very embarrassing when it came out, the fact that um, uh, the U.S. had no idea this was going on until the whole thing crashed and all the uh, documents were stolen and all the computers were were uh, turned into uh, basically bricks uh, from at, at Sony. Hmm. Um, yeah, well, and Michael Hayden, uh, he's the same guy. I remember your last book begins with him not stopping the September 11th attack. Yeah, uh that's the problem with the intelligence community. They never fire anybody. Uh, he, uh, General Hayden missed the 9-11 uh, attack. And then after that, he got the war in Iraq wrong by saying uh, the uh, uh, Iraqis had weapons of mass destruction, which they didn't. And then he, he turned the uh, NSA's eavesdropping uh, technology onto American citizens. Uh, which was illegal and never produced anything. 
Um, so after all that, he got promoted. Uh, you know, what does it take to actually get fired? It's, it's hard to imagine. Yep. And the same thing when um, the his successor uh, uh, became director uh, and and was there at the time that the uh, they lost half a billion pages of documents and all the cyber weapons. Mm-hmm. Mike Rogers, uh, you mean? Yeah, mm-hmm. Mike Rogers. Uh, he was director of the NSA, and again, nothing ever happened. He was never fired, never, they never took a star away. They never lost any pay or anything. And and again, this would never, this would never happen in the corporate world, because the corporation would go bankrupt and the corporation would fold. Um, you know, I mean, if you lose almost all the inventory, or you uh, uh, do something totally outrageous that drives the company into bankruptcy, you're not going to be there very long. Mm-hmm. But in the government, it doesn't work that way, at least in the intelligence community. Yeah. Uh, you could do the, the, the dumbest or the worst uh, uh, activity possible. Miss 9-11, lose all your documents, lose your cyber weapons, and nothing ever happens. Right. They don't even lose their reputation, right? All the ladies on TV news love them. Oh, here's Michael Hayden to tell us what's true. And then, you know... It's funny because well, the was... problem is that you, you don't get much uh, 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 real news uh, from the news media about what's what's going on. I mean, how much attention is the uh, you know the uh, uh, focus on the you know handful of documents basically being found in a presidential compound uh, to um, um, losing half a billion doc- documents and and all the cyber uh, weapons. So there's there's this imbalance of uh, of coverage of what's important. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's one of the key problems. So the public will get a lot of knowledge about something that's somewhat minor and uh, no knowledge or very little knowledge about something that's enormously major, uh, depending on the, you know, uh, what the Twitter flow happens to be for the day or whether a, 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 reporter or, or a correspondent happens to know a lot about uh, cyber or not. Right. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter, Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Aaron, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from Amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right, is... What Susie said about Cindy is always going to be easier to cover than some WannaCry leak that has all these complicated, you know, computer terms and engineering, you know, this and that and whatever. So even the, um, well, let's go to the current one, right? This guy, McGonagall, which that's so funny because I don't know if you remember on the old Simpsons, they had the, the movie about Mendoza, the drug dealer and, and the, um, Clint Eastwood character was McGonagall. Oh, really? And he, he throws the guy out the window and everything. Anyway, um, so McGonagall. Uh, I saw Timothy Snyder, who was a historian and now is a Russiagate hysteric and, and pro-Ukraine war guy. Um, I saw his Twitter yesterday. He said, aha, see? This is why the FBI never got to the bottom of Trump's collusion with Russia was because this guy, McGonagall, is a Russian spy in the FBI, and he was sitting on all the real truth that never got a chance to come out. And so you got to love the Russian Gators. But 
Can you uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, exactly what he's charged with? Is this just like some simple Farah stuff or is he an agent of the FSB under deep cover or what? Well, it hasn't really, uh, a lot of the details haven't really come out much, but uh, apparently, well, at the time, he was the uh, head of counterintelligence, uh, the FBI's counterintelligence uh, unit in New York, which is actually the biggest one uh, uh, outside of Washington. It was an extremely important job. He was there uh, during the uh, the whole Russiagate investigation. And um, he's got several charges. One of them, uh, uh, they're, they're fairly bizarre. One of them is uh, he was taking a quarter million dollars from a former uh, intelligence uh, agent for Albania. And he would fly back and forth to Albania uh, without... Uh, uh, notifying the FBI. In other words, the FBI has this guy that's uh, one of their top officials, and he's flying back and forth to, uh, to Albania. He's meeting the uh, prime minister of Albania, having dinner with him, and uh, he's not putting it down in his, uh, in his uh, forms that he's going there or that he's meeting these people, and he's taking all these uh, all this cash. At one point, he was sitting in a car outside a restaurant, and the guy comes up with an envelope full of, uh, uh, I don't know, $80,000 or something and handed it to him. Uh, so it's all this sort of sleazy stuff that uh, would, wouldn't even make it to a to a B-rated movie, I, I don't think, in terms of believability. So that was one, uh, uh, one charge. And then the other charge, uh, or, or one indictment, the other indictment had to do with uh, after he left the FBI. He became uh, uh, basically a consultant to uh, uh, this top Russian um, uh, person who who was close to Putin, and and uh, um, I think it's uh, it's pronounced Derdepaka. Uh, I see the name all the time. I just I don't know. I think it's Deripaska. Is that right? Deripaska. Yeah. Deripaska, yeah. Um, so he became a, uh, this is after he left the FBI, he became a, uh, uh, like an agent for Darius Paca, uh, and the whole idea was to try to get the uh, uh, sanctions lifted from him. Uh, the problem was he was taking money from him, and he was on the sanction list, and so uh, uh, McGonagall, therefore, was violating the sanctions, uh, U.S. sanctions, by taking money from a sanctioned person. Mm. Uh, at least that's what I, what I uh, sort of um, concluded from reading that uh, indictment. Uh, so there were two two charges. One of them basically had to do with while he was um, in charge of the New York office, and the other one after he left the office. But the one in charge of the New York office just shows how. Um, dim-witted the FBI is. I mean, here it is, this top guy, and he's uh, taking hundreds of thousands of dollars from uh, uh, a former intelligence agent for, for Albania, and he's flying back and forth meeting the prime minister, and the FBI has no idea he's doing this until, you know, uh, years and years after the whole thing's all over. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, there's this thing in the New York Times about that just came out about how the FBI tried to flip Deripaska. And, you know, I need to go back and refresh my memory about, you know, all the accusations about his role in Russiagate. I think he's one of the many people who we were told was by a causal chain of association part of Putin's control over the Trump campaign and, and Trump the president and so forth who never really was a Russian agent anyway. Like, he's a rich Russian oligarch, but that doesn't make him FSB or it doesn't make him a handler of American spies for Vladimir Putin or anything like that. And apparently, according to the New York Times piece, off and on, he's worked with the U.S. government, you know, very closely, and they tried very hard to flip him here and make him one of their guys. So Yeah, I I mentioned him briefly in my book because uh, he... uh, uh, you know, he, he he was a uh, client of uh, Paul Manafort, the former uh, uh, campaign manager for Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
he had a lot of interest in Montenegro. I've got a chapter on Montenegro, the uh, uh, Russian attempted coup in Montenegro. And what was fascinating about this uh, coup, uh, just to back up, uh, Montenegro is a small uh, European country that uh, uh, used to be part of Yugoslavia. And then uh, it's very popular for Russians. Russians go there a lot to use the beaches and all that. Uh, But it's also been very close to the U.S. And there was a point at which uh, the U.S. wanted them to be uh, a new member of NATO, and Russia was absolutely against that because they wanted to build a a naval port in Montenegro. Uh, It was one of the few places that they could uh, uh, build a port on the Mediterranean because NATO controls, uh, it's basically a NATO lake, uh, which is uh, the Mediterranean. So the Russians needed a place for a port. They were looking at Montenegro. Montenegro uh, was in the process of trying to decide whether to go uh, with Russia and and uh, have them build a port there or go to the U.S., uh, go with the U.S. and join NATO. Um, eventually, they decided to join NATO uh, agreed to join NATO, and uh, uh, Putin got very angry at that, and uh, uh, launched a coup attempt in the uh, in Montenegro. Um, what uh, what makes this very interesting to me is that uh, uh, as this coup plot was going on, the very secret coup plot, um, there the group in Montenegro that was close to uh, uh, Putin in Russia uh, was called the Democratic Front. It was uh, the political party that was close to Russia. It was taking, you know, it was secretly taking part in this uh, attempted uh, coup or the planning for the attempted coup. But what made this interesting to me was the fact that they needed a um, an exfiltration team in case their, you know, their coup went sideways. And in case these people in the in the Democratic front, uh, everything went uh, haywire and they needed to get out real quickly. So they needed an exfiltration team. So they hired an exfiltration team, which happened to be made up of CIA and F- former CIA and FBI agents. So you had a CIA agent and, uh, and three uh, former uh, a former CIA agent and, uh, and three former FBI agents who flew over to Montenegro and became the exfiltration team for Putin's uh, uh, attempted coup. Um, and it, the, the whole thing, again, reads, uh, I have a chapter on this. It's very fascinating because I, I have uh, all the inside information from one of the key players in Montenegro, the, one of the people that was hired to be the assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, But it shows that here you get these uh, former FBI, CIA people going over there, helping out in a Russian coup, come back to the United States, and nothing ever happens to them. They're never arrested. They're never investigated. There's never any congressional hearing. Uh, and, uh, you know, unless I dug into this, nobody would ever know about it. Hmm. And then, so what's the reason for the total impunity on that? They couldn't even find one sacrificial head to roll? For... I have no idea. Uh, you know, I, I looked and looked and looked. There were uh, the FBI sent somebody down to ask questions of some of the people who are involved. And I actually got a 302, which is a uh, an FBI form filled out when you interview somebody uh, that showed that the person was interviewed or one of the people that was interviewed, um, not one of the players, but one of the people that knew about the uh, them going to Mon- Montenegro. Um, but that was all. I mean, uh, a couple of people got questioned uh, about it. Uh, uh, it was a huge deal in Montenegro. And uh, uh, they were actually, these guys were actually charged in Montenegro. Uh, there was a um, uh, Interpol warrant sent out for them in Montenegro. Uh, one of them actually was arrested in uh, in Cyprus, and um, on the on the Montenegrin uh, Interpol warrant, but the U.S. Uh, got him off, or basically he got off. I'm not sure exactly how, but uh, the warrant was pulled, and he, he came back to the U.S. So there's a lot of intrigue in here. 
Um, and, you know, when you're doing research on this, you could only go to a certain level and then uh, what's happening below that level, uh, you have no idea about. And that's where it is. So the idea is I do this chapter and hopefully maybe somebody will be able to uh, get something else or some other information. But the point is here you have former U.S. intelligence and FBI people flying to Montenegro helping out in a in a Russian coup, uh, being actually the exfiltration team. I mean, whoever hires uh, people to be an exfiltration team for a democratically elected, uh, a democratic uh, uh, country uh, having a uh, having an election. So the whole thing is bizarre. Uh, there was, like I said, there was never any formal um, uh, FBI investigation that was made public. There was never anybody arrested. There was never any congressional hearings. Um, the whole thing was brushed under the rug. Um, and the question is why, why wasn't something, why wasn't something done? Are you sure that it's not a lie? Like everything they say about Russia all the time? No, listen, I mean, I mean, don't, I don't get me wrong. Like obviously Putin would overthrow a government if he thought he had to, but I'm just saying they're always accusing Russia of all of it. You know, they supposedly did Brexit and overthrew the parliamentary elections of the EU and all this, which is all lies. Well, I don't do those things. I don't do conspiracy. I don't do anything like that. I don't do possibly this, possibly that, could be this, could be that. I just don't do that. It's not in my books. You don't see those words. If if the information's in my book, you can count on it. It's uh, it's valid. Uh, this is all based on facts. So there's no. You sure got a good uh, reputation with me, sir. Huh? I've read your other books and and all your articles over the years. You sure have a good reputation here. Yeah, and I uh, work really hard to do that. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of ways I could speculate. I could have speculated a lot of things on, on all this, but I didn't. You know, the, this came from court testimony in, in uh, uh, Montenegro. I had to translate all this stuff from Montenegrin uh, and, and uh, read court trans transcripts. Uh, I had a... Um, I had all the uh, uh, detail from the uh, person who was actually hired to do the, um, um, uh, actually they, they were gonna, part of the coup was to assassinate uh, uh, the head of uh, uh, the Montenegrin government. No. So uh, all this comes from uh, uh, a very long court case in Montenegro where all these people testified and, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time on on uh, getting all the, the details right and all the facts right. So um, so it's not speculation. There's no, you, I don't have the word possibly in there. I don't think anywhere. Uh, it's just uh, this well, is what and it's not the New York Times either, which, you know, goes on. Authorities say authorities say uh, an official said someone with knowledge no, no. of the thing. Right. You don't write like that either. No, there, there's nothing in there that are, well, I, I don't really have a lot of uh, secret sources that I meet in back uh, alleys or parking garages. Uh, I do a lot of research, really, really hard research to find out uh, and FOI requests and all that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and there are occasional sources that I use also, but there are sources that I've had for for decades, uh, I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time. So I'm very confident about things that I write about and uh, I've never really had any issues in terms of people saying, you know, you got this wrong, you got that wrong or whatever. I work really hard at getting it accurate and, and you know, I wouldn't be writing uh, about this if, uh, if I didn't know what I'm talking about. Again, I, this is based on at least the Montenegrin part uh, is all based on um, information that came out in a Montenegrin court. The case went on for months, and you uh, had all these people testifying. Um, so there's a, a, a lot of detail in there, but the detail comes from uh, not speculation. It comes from, uh, from facts. Yeah. Hey, look, that reminds me of a book that I left off of the list of all your great books, A Pretext for War. 9-11, Iraq, and the Abuse of America's Intelligence Agencies, which is a really great one in terms of uh, retelling the story of, or not retelling, telling the story of the neocons, the 
separate government under Dick Cheney on, in the W. Bush years that lied us into war in Iraq for the Likud yeah. and all of that. Great stuff. Yeah, that, well, stuff. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, that was a horrible, uh, uh, just a terrible war that should never have happened. And yeah, it was all these neocons that were pushing forward and constantly, constantly pushing forward. They finally got it. So yeah, I, I Spent a lot of time in that book. It was, uh, you know, it was uh, teeth gnashing uh, material because uh, so many people ended up being killed, innocent people in Iraq being killed because of this uh, absurd war that should never have happened. Yeah. 20 years later, I'm not over it. I know, you know, a lot of people are, and it, it's like the Korean War or something now, a long time ago, but not here. So, well, one, you know, one thing that really bothers me, too, is the fact that, uh, you know, we we do all these things. We have these wars uh, that were was based on lies, basically, the, the whole Iraq war. And um, uh, yet nobody sanctions the United States. Where, where are all these sanctions? You know, we sanction Russia all the time for for uh, invading Ukraine or whatever. Uh, but we invade Iraq and nobody sanctions us. Uh, because the people doing the sanctions were the people that were helping us, uh, the Europeans and so forth. So, um, y you know, it's this, uh, this double standard where, where we could launch, we could launch uh, crazy wars in uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places, Vietnam and so forth, uh, and, and yet uh, we never get punished for it. We never get any sanctions uh, uh, from the rest of the world. Um, and we just so, sort of say, oh, well, uh, uh, sorry about that. Move on. And uh, yet, you know, we're the first country to jump into sanctions anytime somebody does something that we don't like. Yeah. I mean, you listen to the D.C. consensus. They can't imagine why anyone in the world would think of America as anything less than the most honest of brokers. Uh, you know, I always... I'm, I might be ripping this off from someone else clarified, not just America's Superman, but America's Christopher Reeve as Superman, the virgin Boy Scout, never tell a lie, you know, perfect, uh, you know, truth, justice in the American way. And, oh, Iraq and Somalia and Afghanistan and all that. I'll never even mind all that. It just doesn't count against us in their eyes. And they can't even imagine how anyone else in the world would look at us kind of sideways. Never mind. Hold us accountable. But how could they even think that we have any other motive other than spreading goodness and light when we, for example, pour $50 billion worth of weapons into Ukraine or whatever it is, you know, well, arm up the exactly. Taiwanese then, for the next war? And then the other problem is that uh, uh, we do these things. We have like this enormous uh, war in, in Iraq, killing all these people for for no reason. Uh, I mean, the whole reason originally was that uh, Saddam had weapons of mass destruction and was a danger to the world. So we had to go in there and eliminate uh, Saddam and and uh, uh, turn uh, Iraq into a friendly uh, U.S. friendly country um, when he never had any weapons of mass destruction. Again, it's one of the worst. Uh, uh, blunders of U.S. intelligence in, in history. And, you know, as I, I write in the book, the intelligence community obviously knew that uh, he didn't have weapons of mass destruction um, because, you know, one of the things that we have are satellites in space that can photograph things on Earth uh, a couple inches wide. Yep. And uh, nobody, no country has ever built nuclear weapons uh, uh uh, without building a delivery system, the delivery system being a, uh, 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 you know, uh, three-stage intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those things you actually have to test outside in, uh, in the fresh air. You have to, uh, you know, send them into space, see if they work. And we obviously would have seen that if they were doing that. So we never saw that they were building any kind of uh, ICBM or testing any kind of ICBM. And if you're not building ICBMs, there's no point in having nuclear a nuclear warhead if there's no place to put it on. So the U.S. intelligence knew that Saddam could not have had uh, 
weapons that could have uh, reached the United States or attacked the United States or weapons of mass destruction. So, um, uh, yeah, we went to war, um, uh, this horrible war that killed uh, hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people in, uh, in Iraq and uh, innocent people that should never have been killed. And yet there was no accountability. There was no congressional hearings afterwards about how this happened, how we got into this um, mess. Um, Obama basically came into office and said, uh, well, that's, you know, uh, uh, that's history. We're not going to look into it. We're not going to uh, do anything about it. Nobody was ever charged. We never had any congressional hearings here. You're going to have congressional hearings on everything. You have congressional hearings on uh, uh, whether there was uh, some documents in, in Biden or Trump's uh, uh, presidential compounds or whatever. But we killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in a war that should never happen, and we never have a single hearing about how that came about. Yeah. Hey, y'all, you should sign up for my Substack. It's scotthortonshow.substack.com. And if you do that, you'll get the interviews a day before everybody else. But not only that, they'll be free of commercials. How do you like that? Pretty good, huh? scotthortonshow.substack.com. Hey, y'all, libertasbella.com is where you get Scott Horton Show and Libertarian Institute shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and stickers and things, including the great Top Lobsters designs as well. See, that way it says on your shirt why you're so smart. Libertas Bella, from the same great folks who bring you ammo.com for all your ammunition needs, too. That's libertasbella.com. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org. I'm the director. Then we've got Sheldon Richmond, Kyle Anzalone, Keith Knight, Lori Calhoun, Jim Bovard, Connor Freeman, Will Porter, Patrick McFarlane, and Tommy Salmons on our staff, writing and podcasting. And we've also got a ton of other great writers, too, like Walter Block, Richard Booth, Boss Spleet, Kim Robinson, and William Van Wagenen. We've published eight books so far, including my latest, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, and Keith Knight's new voluntarist handbook. And we've got quite a few more great ones coming soon. Check out libertarianinstitute.org slash books. It's a whole new era. We libertarians don't have the power, but we do have enough influence to try to lead the left and the right to make things right. Join us at libertarianinstitute.org. And what's funny is they did have reports, I guess, whatever hearings they held were in secret or they just had their staff write up reports, but even kind of the Republicans cover up reports about how they lied us into war in Iraq are damning as can be if you take the time to read them. But you're right. Certainly they never made the big circus out of it. And, you know, one of the most important characters during all that is James Clapper. And I'd have to go back, but I'm sure that this is in a pretext for war. He was the head of the National Reconnaissance Office at the time. He was the guy vouching for the satellite pictures, pretending that every horse trough was a uh, somehow a chemical weapons laboratory. Any building with a roof must be must have a secret stash of uh, mustard gas beneath it and this kind of thing. And then he was the same guy who perpetrated the long-forgotten hoax that, oh, no, see, Saddam did have weapons of mass destruction, but Vladimir Putin helped him move them to Syria right before the war, and that's why we can't find them. And that was James Clapper, too. Him and the neocons, he was vouching for the neocons hoax that that's what happened to Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. And then he's now famous, and people cite this, that he famously is the same guy that lied to Congress under oath and said they weren't keeping records on, you know, all of our uh, metadata and all of that stuff, spying on the American people. And so he's famous for that. But he had already lied us into war and then lied about his lies of lying us into war before the NSA spying lies ever happened. He, he later became the director of national intelligence. And he's now on TV yeah. every day telling us what's true and false. Yeah, that's, a, that's the other thing. These people who are, um, you know, keeping all these secrets, uh, uh, heads of NSA like... Uh, Hayden and, and uh, Clapper, uh, the head of the Office of Director of National Intelligence and so forth, and they go on television and make millions. Uh, the, the irony here is that if you're a, a worker 
you know, a regular worker bee at one of these agencies. Uh, you can't do that. You can't go on television and, and just talk about these things. Or you can't certainly can't write an op-ed piece without sending the op-ed piece for uh, review uh, at, at the CIA or NSA or wherever uh, before it goes uh, goes to press. So if you're one of these people that that is, uh, you know, below the uh, director level or whatever, you've got to go through all these procedures before you can actually write anything. But the directors come out and they go on television and get paid millions of dollars to uh, to be talking heads without them having to account for anything that they're saying. Yep. So it's a double standard. And yep. just going back to the uh, the fact that we never had any clearance, uh, any uh, hearings after 9-11. Uh, I'm sorry, after uh, the war in Iraq about how we got into it and why we got into it and who should be blamed for it. Um, England, on the other hand, uh, the UK uh, uh, did have, they had, uh, uh, I think, several years worth of hearings, uh, including calling um, top officials, uh, including the prime minister, to, to respond to questions about how uh, the UK got involved in the Iraq war. So, you know, we seem to be unique in, in, in the world here where we can do these things, but we don't have to hold ourselves accountable and nobody else uh, will hold us accountable, yeah. uh, which leads to us continually doing these things over and over and over again. Well, and in the bizarre world we live in, the best shot anybody ever had at thwarting the, you know, status quo, Clinton, Bush, you know, post-Cold War world empire was Donald freaking Trump. And the entire government refused to go along with him on the few things that he was good on. Uh, and he wasn't very good on very many things in the first place. And they went, as we talked about, to the lengths of framing him up on Russiagate to prevent him from, uh, well, first of all, to excuse their failure in the election. But then also, as the FBI told CNN, to rein him in. If they can't overthrow him with the 25th Amendment, they can at least rein him in by keeping this pretended investigation going. Um, and then and it worked. Right. I mean, they did. You know, they uh, they didn't. I don't think they stole the votes, but they certainly did all these, you know, crush the Republicans October surprise. That was the FBI and the CIA again. And then the FBI had their own October surprise where they plotted to kidnap the Democrat lady governor of Michigan and frame these Trump supporters for it when they were the ones who were behind the whole damn thing. And um, and then so what happened was we got the exact same crew. The Biden government is the Obama government. Those were the which was, you know, not much different in kind from the Bush people. Right. Just the the sort of mirror image of the Bush people. And then so we got the exact same people back instead of getting a return to normalcy like we might have gotten with Ron Paul end the world empire and be a normal country in a normal time. Instead, return to normalcy means go right back from the craziness of Trump to the world empire of Barack Obama. And so here we are just stuck, as you say, talk about no accountability. Our government right now is at war with Russia those are the words of the Germans who were part of the war. We are at war with Russia right now. And it's Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan and Anthony Blinken and Victoria Nuland are in charge. The same people who got us into this mess eight years ago, nine years ago now. Well, uh, that's why I write books uh, about these kind of things, uh, the intelligence community and the and national security and and. Uh, you know, I was a columnist at uh, Foreign Policy magazine uh, for uh, a number of years, and I would just be so frustrated because uh, you see all these things happening behind the scenes, and and the public doesn't really have much of a knowledge about uh, how idiotic some of these decisions are. Anyway, that's why I write books because, uh, you know, the, a lot of the stuff is so hidden, nobody would see it otherwise. Yeah. Well, man, I sure value that. Um, and listen, before I let you go, I want to uh, ask you, Jim, about Russia and China and their spies in America. And I'm not trying to climb on any Cold War bandwagon, but at the same time, these are major powers and they do have a major interest in spying on the United States defensively and I'm sure offensively. Of course, Ames and Hansen 
are kind of the apex of that, as far as I know. But, um, you know, and I know that they framed up poor Wen Ho Lee so that uh, James Riotti could get away. But I wonder if you could tell us about the reality of uh, Russian and Chinese spying in the United States. Well, uh, you know, obviously they're, they're spying, but it, it's not at the level, I don't think, of, uh, of what uh, people assume. You know, this, the whole idea of human intelligence is rather obsolete. Um, we don't send, uh, you know, human spies, uh, uh, undercover to Russia, uh, at least not very much as far as I know. And they don't really send it over here It's people that work in embassies and they have diplomatic immunity if they get caught. Uh, I mean, there were, you know, a decade ago, there were the, uh, spies that were, uh, the sleeper agents in, in the U S from Russia, but they didn't really accomplish anything. I don't think none of them ever got anything classified. So the human intelligence uh, aspect is rather obsolete. It's, uh, it's good for movies, but it doesn't really happen much. Um, the, uh, the spying that's done is all done, um, um, electronically, like, uh, like I said, it's the stealing of, uh, of uh, cyber, uh, the stealing of uh, cyber weapons and the infiltration of, uh, of, of NSA and so forth electronically. So those are the things, those are the areas that I sort of focus on a lot. I, I don't have a lot on human spies in the U.S. I wrote, uh, uh, you know, during the Russiagate era, uh, I focused on Maria Butina because they the government um, uh, went after her. They were looking for, they needed a Russian to arrest. And as I said, the Russians don't really send humans over to spy like that. So I knew the whole thing was rather bogus from the very beginning, and I really looked into it a great deal. And I wrote a long piece for The New Republic about Maria Butina, and I actually have a uh, couple chapters in the uh, the book on the case. But it shows how the the, uh... And you know what, Jim, thank you for that, by the way, because nobody else did. And it was such an obvious fraud. You know, she was a pretty redhead like Anna Chapman. So they went, oh, look, as you're saying, they needed someone to arrest. So he went after this poor lady. And and man, the narrative against her, oh, selling sex for secrets and all of this stuff. It was so heavy. And all the liberal Democrats in the Twitter swarm, they loved it so much. And you're the only one who said, well, actually... Let's do journalism and find out what's going on here. And then what was going on here was the exact opposite of what they said. They locked her in solitary confinement and all this stuff. It was monstrous what they did to her. And just for a PR exercise. So thank you for that. And on behalf of probably her and a hell of a lot of other people who noticed that you're the only one who did the work, man. Well, that's that's what I actually enjoy doing. Uh, in addition to that, I knew Maria Putina. I knew her before. All this happened. As I said, I was a writer uh, for Foreign Policy magazine, and, and so I would go to a lot of uh, uh, functions in Washington uh, where they had speakers, and they, uh, at one of the functions uh, she was at, I was about to go to Siberia. Somebody said that uh, she had, uh, grew up in Siberia, so uh, I talked to her about Siberia. We got to know uh, uh each other and uh, was more than a year later that all this stuff happened. So I knew she wasn't a spy. I mean, I'm the guy that knows a lot about intelligence. Never once did she ever ask me a question about intelligence. Uh, I made the approach to her. She didn't approach me. Uh, so um, all these indicators that would indicate that this person's a spy just weren't there. And then when I looked into it, it the whole thing was so absurd. Um, and the government, uh, I go into this in, in a, a great extent in the book, uh, how the government really needed a, a Russian to arrest when Russiagate happened because they didn't have anybody. I mean, they couldn't even find uh, uh, spies in Hillary Clinton's campaign. So um, they're looking for a Russian to arrest. She happened to be... Uh, uh, a Russian who came to their attention, like you said, she was attractive. She had long red hair. She looked like um, somebody out of, uh, uh, you know, a novel. And um, 
so they made this case against her, which was total nonsense. And then when they uh, uh, basically the whole thing exploded in court, they charged her with being a sort of a red sparrow. And then when it came out, there was nothing there. And uh, so they eventually dropped the major charge against her. It was a horrible thing. And uh, she had to endure you know, uh, solitary confinement. I mean, the, the whole thing was so absurd. But anyway, I get into it in a great deal in the in the book. And uh, great. Um, again, it's just one of those things that you really do have to, to dig to find out what really went on behind the scenes. And that's uh, that's sort of how I create my books. And that's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to focus on these areas that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. Hey, can you tell us real quick about Alexander Ma? Yeah, uh, uh, again, it's another absolute failure. And this one was uh, maybe the worst of all, the worst tragic failure. Uh, the CIA obviously does a lot of uh, intelligence collection in, in China. And what they do is they develop sources over there. They develop uh, locals who can give them information, local agents. Um, and then all these uh, uh, dozens of them started being arrested and being killed by the Chinese. Nobody could figure out why that was happening. Uh, how, how are the Chinese finding out who these people are that are cooperating with the CIA? And uh, so it, it took a long time and uh, it finally came out. It really hasn't gotten any, uh, any attention. I'm really the only person who's uh, written about this. But... I really dug into it, and it turned out that this uh, the FBI had been infiltrated by a, a Chinese mole, uh, a guy named Alexander Ma. Uh, he had formerly Wait, worked FBI for, or CIA? No, it, Ma had uh, well, Ma had originally worked for the CIA. He'd been uh, oh, uh, I see. He worked for the CIA for I don't know ten, fifteen years, something like that, and then he left the CIA and. Uh, went to China sort of mysteriously. Apparently there's no regulations at the CIA where, where uh, former agents can, uh, you would think there'd be a regulation where a former agent can't go back to the country that was his target country, uh, but he did. He went back to China, spent a few years there, came back to the United States, and then, uh, and then returned to China and then volunteered to be a uh, spy for the Chinese uh, government. And the Chinese government said, well, we need a, a mole in the FBI. So he applied to be a uh, uh, to work for the FBI. And having been, you know, previously worked for the CIA, it didn't it wasn't really that difficult. So he was hired by the FBI uh, around uh, 2004. I think it was something like that. Um, and he worked as a translator in the uh, in the. Hawaii office, the uh, uh, office in Honolulu, which was the office that focused largely on China. And he would take all the information that he could collect, all the uh, secrets. There was no restrictions on him at all. He'd walk out the door with it. He'd make copies of things. He'd download things on flash drives. He he just constantly steal all this uh, really uh, damning information on on, China. uh, agents and sources in China. And once every couple months, he'd actually fly to Shanghai, you know, the target country. And uh, they would, the Chinese intelligence would put him up in a hotel and he'd be debriefed and he'd give what? him all the documents and he'd fly back. Come to, on, uh, you're putting me on. Why no, wouldn't he just drop it off? It went on for, went on for uh, up, upwards of 20 years. Uh, he was only arrested in 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, so all these people are, are being killed in, in uh, all these uh, agents are being killed in China and nobody knows why. And here's this guy that. Uh, and what exactly was his job at FBI? He was a translator. So he would be able to get access to all the information of the wiretaps and so forth. His brother also uh, formerly worked for the CIA. And he also became a. Uh, uh, a spy for China, and he was based in the U.S. and he would uh, help the Chinese find cooperating Chinese who were in the United States. So, uh, uh, so he had the two brothers formerly worked for the CIA. One ended up working for the FBI, 
and the other uh, uh, lived in California, and they both uh, ended up uh, uh, being top spies for, for China. And again, none of this has come out. I mean, I'm the first one to write about all this stuff. So wow. um, it, it, it's, again, that's the title of my book is Spy Fail, because the, the constant failure of the U.S. intelligence community, um, you know, my previous books have always looked at how uh, uh, the agencies like the NSA spied on other countries and spied on us. And in this book, I'm looking at how other countries are spying on us, uh, largely because of our own failures. And a lot of times it leads to wars, it leads to uh, uh, people being killed. And, and uh, that's why I decided to focus on, on this aspect. Yeah. Well, listen, I can't wait. The book is already ordered and on its way here. But at least, you know, I have enough to, you know, satiate my appetite for a little while until I finish my book. But it's going right on the top of my pile. And then that way, when I actually read the whole thing, we can reprise this interview and go into areas that uh, maybe we didn't get a chance to touch yeah, on. Yeah, there's a lot time. of other aspects in the book. I mean, the, yeah. the parts that have come out were parts that have, uh, I did for the New York Post and the uh, Business Insider. and, and uh, Oh, I didn't see that one. The Daily Beast. Uh, yeah, I oh, wrote okay. about uh, uh, the uh, Chinese spy scandal for uh, the uh, Business Insider, uh, and then um, the uh, what is it? The uh, Daily Beast did uh, did an excerpt on the uh, Hillary Clinton, um, uh, you know, infiltration of Hillary Clinton's campaign. So Great. it's got a, a you know, it's good to get a, a lot of attention at the at the beginning there. Um, so hopefully, you know, it'll attract enough attention and people will become aware because what's going on really has to stop. Otherwise, uh, um, you know, it's just going to keep going on and going on. There's got to be accountability within intelligence, within the intelligence community. And pretty much as long as I've been writing books, uh, it's never taken place. Yeah. All right. So, uh, first of all, here in Business Insider, it's how China planted an FBI mole who was discovered only after gutting the CIA's vast spy network. That's January 17th. And then in the Daily Beast, these shady UAE donors gave millions to Clinton and Trump while the feds dozed. And um, But you know what? Before I let you go, let me ask you one more thing, which is, is there a chapter about Israeli spying in the United States? Because now I'm reminded that you're the guy in the shadow factory. You broke the story about how they were using Israeli software to run all their spying technology and all of that stuff. Oh, my God. How could I have forgotten that even for a day, Jim? Yeah, there's uh, there's several chapters in there on Israeli spying in the U.S. So, uh, uh, so you know, it looks like everybody's spying on us and uh, we, we never are able to detect it, or if we do, we never able to do anything about it. So, yeah, I've got, uh, uh, you know, in addition to everybody else, I've certainly got the Israelis in there. Great. All right. Can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to talk to you again. And Always good to be on your show, Scott. So thanks again for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody. That's the great James Bamford. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.